Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an ACAST supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ideas in writing. is Ideas in Writing, the podcast where we talk to people who use words and discuss writing, performing, books, lyrics. There's nothing really off limits, uh, so you'll find the occasional swear word here and there, I'm afraid. Uh, Despite what I say at the beginning of this show, this is actually episode 11 and the very first interview we've done face to face. Um, And I was really pleased to be able to visit uh, David Barry at his home in Tunbridge Wells, not far from us. Uh, We talk about his beginnings in North Wales and then his upbringing in London. We talk about his early days at stage school and as a child actor with uh, Sir Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. And then, of course, in Police Sir and the Fen Street Gang and how he started in writing. David is, above all, now a writer, having written a couple of memoirs, including uh, Flashback, An Actor's Life, and Police Sir, The Official History, which was just recently published. He's also an accomplished crime writer with titles such as A Deadly Diversion, The Wrecking Bar and Each Man Kills. He's written an entertaining sequel to David uh, Copperfield, uh, by Charles Dickens obviously, um, called Mr. Micawber Down Under and I tried to persuade him to uh, send this to Armando Iannucci. Uh, We talked about his quite recent uh, Edinburgh Fringe debut and David is in fact appearing as Frankie Abbott still, in a couple of uh, radio dramas he's written uh, about uh, Frankie Abbott in later life. Uh, they're performed, uh, being performed and recorded, actually, at the Phoenix Arts Club in London on the 13th of November. Uh, it's called The Lives of Frankie Abbott. And I think you can probably get tickets from phoenixartsclub.com. Uh, so, and don't forget to listen to the end for details of our upcoming live event in December. It's a good one. 
so look out for that and you can get tickets for that. Um, so this is Intuition Comedic, um, or I think maybe I'll call it Comedic Intuition with David Barry. David, thank you so much for inviting me to your home. Well, thank you for coming and recording me. It's very exciting doing a face-to-face uh, recording for the podcast. It's a, it's a first. And I think we're on number 10 or something. Number 10, gosh. Yeah, yes. I, I've lost count. But anyway, um, it's great to meet you again. Um, yes, and you, yes. Well, We've met in Tunbridge a few times. Yes, a couple yes. of times, yes. Um, I think at the, um, at the fire station... Although I have a vague memory, because when I lived in Tunbridge Wells, I have a vague memory of us bumping into each other, maybe at Trinity or something. At Trinity, yes, or, or even I, I came to your bookshop at one stage. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yes, 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 and yes. I brought some books. So. Ah, right, okay, well, then there's <laughs> that as well, yeah. Yes. So how have you been doing over the last, well, it's like 18 months now, isn't it? It is 18 months, yes, and... Uh, actually, I mean, I'm not going to feel guilty about it, but it's actually done me a lot of favours, um, the lockdown, actually. Hmm. Yeah, uh, because I approached my publisher and I said, how would it be if I wrote, please, sir, the official history? And they said, yeah, we'd go for that. We'll publish it straight away. And uh, I wrote it um, during 2020. Yeah. And uh, it came out in November, the hardback, and then... Uh, more recently, the paperback. Yeah, and I've read it, and it's great. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, get, we'll, we'll talk about that, because uh, there is a lot to talk about. And, and as I was saying to you just before we started recording, my uh, partner is a, a, an immense fan of you and, and the show oh, right, right. <laughs> and, and the movie. Well, it's, it's strange. It's, do, it's done better than any of my other books, uh, because I think it's because of the uh, the COVID. Mm. It's like the um, Paint Your Wagon, the song, uh, Wandering Star. You know, I've never seen a view that didn't look better looking back. <laughs> and I think it's not that nostalgia now. Yeah. And I've got all sorts of people saying to me, um, oh, you know, it, they were so much better, the comedies in those days. I don't agree with them because I think in every decade, like in the noughties, the start of the noughties, yeah. we had wonderful stuff like The Office. Yes, you know. Yeah. Every decade produces some good stuff. Yes, of course. But then it is it, it does come back to um, it's things like the music of your youth, isn't it? You, when you start kind of rediscovering or, or reconnecting with it, it evokes lots of memories. And that's right. That's right. That's why I'm a bit like the old funny duddies now. I'm saying, you know, Soul and, and Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> yes, you know, I don't know what they're singing about nowadays. Uh, right. I thought you meant you were going to do a comeback tour. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, so, David, I've got to ask you about your name, first of all. Yes, yes. Because uh, you, not everyone would know you as David Barry, would they? No, it, I'm, I'm from North Wales and my real name is Merrick Wynne-Jones. Right. So, so that's not Scottish, is it? No, <laughs> no. In fact, on my dad's side, we I think we've got connections with the Joneses of North Wales, but I imagine it's quite a common name. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So so um, tell me about your youth in North Wales. Um, well, um, I was born in Bangor, and my parents then moved to Anglesey, which is on uh, North Anglesey, a little place called Amloch. Mm. And uh, I didn't actually go to the theatre a lot because there weren't any theatres you know yeah. but there was the royal cinema and it used to change its um 
its program every two days and I used to see the lot I can remember aged nine years old seeing um, Marlon Brando with Anthony Quinn in Viva Zapata with oh, a screenplay yes. by John Steinbeck didn't yeah. get any better than that did it yeah and uh, that sort of strongly influenced me the only time I can remember going to the theatre was a long weekend in Liverpool with my parents and we went to see a post West End tour of Carousel and uh, I thought uh, um, Jerry Marsden of Jerry and the Pacemakers we're the same age He's, he died sadly about uh, three or four months ago mm. but I could imagine that he his parents took him to see that same show and that song You'll Never Walk Alone filtered into his brain aged nine and became a successful pop song for him yes. later on and then yeah. the Liverpool anthem of course yeah yeah that's, that's but you know I can't ask him now can I <laughs> no no but it's interesting that, well, that would have been at the Empire would it Empire yes yeah. at the Empire yes and uh, yeah and uh, we um, moved to um Southeast England when I was um, to Richmond in Surrey when I was 10 years old I failed the 11 plus went to a, a Mortlake Secondary Modern School which I hated yeah. I got picked on because of my Welsh accent oh uh, really oh yeah yeah did you did you then uh, deliberately kind of change it no no that's not what happened at all I, I wouldn't have known how to change it um, my parents were doing a, a Welsh play the Corn is Green by mm. Emlyn Williams yes. in Amateur Dramatics at uh, Twickenham. And uh, there's lots of schoolboys in it who speak Welsh. So I got one of the parts. And they didn't have enough Welsh-speaking boys, so an English boy came in and he attended Corona Academy Stage School. And he'd already done two films. Oh. So I pestered my parents, that's what I want to do, you know. Yeah. Can I go there? But it was a fee-paying school and they couldn't afford it. So they said, well, we'll go and investigate anyway. Now, I've always looked younger than my age. And uh, I probably looked about nine years old at the age of 12. So when they saw this at the stage school, they said, we guarantee we can get him enough work to cover the school fees, which is exactly what happened. My wow. parents never had to pay a penny. That's amazing. And even before I started at the school... Um, they got me a part in um, a play called Life with Father at Theatre Royal Windsor, one of three young boys. And uh, it's got the record as the longest-running play on Broadway, non-musical play. And uh, I was playing an American boy. But, of course, I'd seen so many American films, the accent I could put on, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. So... so uh so your parents were obviously supportive of that. Oh, yes, because they, they were keen on the theatre. Yeah. My father was actually a London Welshman. He was um, born somewhere like Balham. And he was in the uh, civil defence during the war. And my, grand, my maternal grandparents, my grandfather, they emigrated to Chicago in the 1920s. So my mother went there. And oh, wow. a, an uncle who's no longer alive but yeah. since then told me that your grandfather owned a lot of property in Hollyhead and uh, he sold up and obviously went to make his fortune in the land of milk and honey <laughs> and, uh, and the 1929 came 
a lot. Oh, I see. Yes. Wall Street crash, and probably I'm I'm guessing now probably lost all his money. They came back to London. He was a pharmacist, and probably worked as a pharmacist for Boots or somewhere in mm. in London. And that's where my mother met my father. Oh, I see. And right. Before the war ended, because I think the the heavy bombing and after the V1 and all that. I think they came back to live in Wales, uh, which was a safe place to be because yes. we had yet to encounter the V2s, hadn't we? Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that's where I was born. Oh, I see. So, so uh, yeah, so Welsh heritage, but it's the connections in London. And, and so moving back to London wasn't a big uh, no. upheaval for them, I suppose. No, and they loved going around art galleries, museums and the theatre. They... We, went to the Old Vic, they took me to the Old Vic quite a few times, I saw Richard Burton in Henry V and things like that Yeah, yeah. so uh, so that, that's when you would have become aware of um, Laurence Olivier That's right, that's right and that's when, because in those um, days before kitchen sink drama and before um, you know, uh, regional accents had become de rigueur um, <laughs> I had to lose my Welsh accent. I had to have voice production at the stage school. And so I, I uh, learned to speak RP. <laughs> yeah. So, so what was your life like then at the, at the stage school? Because they, they'd guaranteed that you could get this work. That, so it was presumably it's very flexible in terms of your school days and when you were working. And Yes. Well, the acad academic subjects went <laughs> out the window really. <laughs> really because yeah you'd you'd be what the teachers must have felt like god only knows because all of, i mean i went to school with richard o'sullivan francesca annis fraser hines jeremy bullock we were all of the same wow, age yeah. and uh you know people would say oh there's a you're you need to attend an audition so off we'd go interrupt a, an english or maths lesson yeah. and then you might disappear to do a telly for a week or a theater job um, those teachers must have been very frustrated. That sounds great, though. Yeah, great for us. <laughs> so, did they just sort of uh, pack you off? Uh, you know, here's 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 the address. Go and audition, or did they? Well, you had to have a chaperone under the yeah. age of sixteen. Ah, yeah. yeah, you had yeah. to be chaperoned. Yeah. So, so you were looked after uh, in a way. Did they? Did, were they, they acting as agents then? Yes, uh, Rona Knight was the principal of Corona Academy School, mm -hmm. and she was um, oh passionate about Shakespeare and all that sort of thing you know so we had a grounding in Shakespeare mm. and uh, her sister Hazel Malone ran the agency which was coupled with the school oh, so yeah so all the school kids at the Corona uh, belonged to the agency as well Oh, that's good. And sometimes they do a job lot, you know. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so Discount for I was a non non speaking part in Carry On Teacher, um, you know, just sitting behind a desk oh, and stuff like that. Because they do the whole school would go and be um, non speaking parts. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you about Carry On films because because your career kind of overlapped with that. Was that never a thing that you? I know I was never offered a carry on film, you yeah. know, a proper part. Yeah, no. no I but I, I don't know whether that's, that was that, was that something you wanted to do, or was, well, put it this way: most actors, you know, because they have such times in between, they more or less accept any jobs that <laughs> yes, come along, unless yeah. you're a big name, and then you can be choosy, can't you? Yeah, it's like that old joke: Do you still answer the phone saying, "I'll do it"? Yes, yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or how many actors does it take to change a light bulb? 
uh, two, one to change the light bulb and one to stand below and say, I could have done that. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, but you but you were so you were really immersed in the business from from a very early age, weren't you? I mean, working with other people who were making their careers. That's right. And I worked uh, the renowned director, Peter Brook. Um, he cast me as a Mexican boy in The Power of the Glory with Paul Schofield and oh, wow. Harry H. Corbett and people yeah, like that. And, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then later on, uh, I had to audition again for Peter Brook for Titus Andronicus, mm -hmm. which was uh, going to be a glittering tour, touring Europe in 1957 with Sir Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee and Anthony yeah. Quayle. Wow. And, uh, and, it was going to Paris, Venice, Belgrade, Zagreb, Vienna and Warsaw. And what was so stunning about it was because Churchill had, um, you know, made the speech about the Iron Curtain that has come down with all the communist bloc countries, which mm. were nearly most of them in Europe, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania. They were all under the power of Moscow, really. Mm. And uh, so we were the first company to go into two communist bloc countries, um, Yugoslavia and Poland. Wow. And, of course, Yugoslavia, um, Tito came to see, uh, President Tito came to see us. And uh, the, um, the, the security was unbelievable. It was exciting for me seeing people backstage in black leather coats with bulges under their left arm, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and uh, I've since read up on it and I've discovered that... Uh, Tito was becoming more liberal and um, Stalin uh, had a price on his head and tried to have him assassinated six times. Gosh. Yeah, so no wonder we had great security. Yeah. Although this was Khrushchev who was now in power. Oh, at that time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what was, so what was it like, first of all, what was it like auditioning for people like Peter Brook or indeed? Great. Yeah. He was such a lovely man, you know, and encouraged you, you know. Mm. He wasn't sort of read this and just do it he would encourage you yeah yeah and then working with Laurence Olivier oh fantastic yeah yeah now you're just going to say nice things about them aren't you <laughs> well put it this way I have some great stories about Laurence Olivier you know like uh, Miss Knight she was the principal of our school and she thought this is a plum job I'll be his chaperone <laughs> so oh, she, really? yes she wanted to see all these wonderful places you know yeah. and be with Laurence Olivier you know and uh, we were listening to the show Relay one night and Miss Knight picked up, pricked up her ears and she said, gosh, he's ad-libbing iambic pentameter. Um, so I rushed down onto the stage and Olivier came off stage trying to stifle a laugh and he was saying, I was talking that a bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, but he made it up in iambic pentameter. Unbelievable. Um, yeah, it was it was crazy. But of course, Vivian Lee, uh, she was bipolar, and uh, she was going through. She was having a breakdown at the time, and mm. of course, they were the cultural ambassadors for Britain. Really, this tour, this glittering tour, we had um, a Daily Express man came with us on the tour, with us wherever we went, taking photographs yeah. and writing about it, and. Uh, you know, everybody hoped that Vivian Lee wouldn't freak out because at the time everybody knew it, that she was, except me, of course, I only <laughs> learnt this later, mm. that she was having an affair with Peter Finch. Yeah, yeah. And the whole 
of the show business knew about it and Olivier just turned a blind eye to it but um, she would um, freak out and uh, you know scream at him and, yeah. or you swear at him and all this, that sort of thing but she spoiled me rotten oh really yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, so how many uh, young actors were on that tour did, did you do the whole thing or were you, did I did, did the whole it? tour six week tour of mm. Europe yeah and uh, we finished off in Warsaw and uh, came back to London and did a six-week stint at the Stoll Theatre Kingsway in London. Oh, wow. And uh, that's when Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier used to run the St James's Theatre. And uh, she happened to go along to uh, as a guest to the House of Lords, sitting next to the Black Rock at the visitor's seat. And uh, she was to hear a debate about uh, funding the arts. But they debated tearing down St James's Theatre to build an office block. So she stood up and she said, my lords, I object to this. Well, you don't do that at the House of Lords as a visitor. So <laughs> she was thrown out. But it made headlines, of course. Of course yeah. And um, she, uh, she, <laughs> she then, um, then organised a march, a protest march, before everybody's matinee on a Saturday throughout the West End. And obviously the Titus company were the head of the march. And uh, she grabbed my hand and pulled me to the front to march with her and Sir Lawrence. And all the press photographers were coming around saying, who's this? Who's this young lad, you know? And so um, I found it recently on a, a, a Reuters clip on the BBC News. Because, oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow, you must find, yeah, I must yeah. find that myself. And, uh, yeah, and uh, they meant, made speeches at um, St Martin's in the field and uh, she opened a letter from uh, Sir Winston Churchill, who adored her. And he, he said, um, he said uh, whilst I cannot approve of your disorderly methods as a parliamentarian, I would, however, like to contribute £500 to your cause, which is about eight grand in today's money. And probably money that he didn't have. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wasn't known for keeping. But he his... he he loved her. He went yeah. to see her in uh, as Cleopatra and Anthony and Cleopatra, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and he he apparently at St James's Theatre, and he he booked two seats because he was quite a big man, so he would pay for two seats. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so th th so they were really they uh, they were a power couple, weren't they? I mean, they were, pa uh, yeah, a power media couple of mm. their day. You know, yeah. they, everywhere they went, they were huge news. Yeah, you know? yeah, and of course, the Europeans loved her because of she was, you know, Scarlett O'Hara and Streetcar Named Desire, two Oscars, you know. Yeah, and he'd had two Oscars as well, Henry V and Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, but quite, um, yeah, but but bigger figures than even the theatre and, and oh the, yes, and cinema. Yes, and uh, I think. Um, because in the 1950s, you know, like thinking about people like Max Wall, infidelity and divorce killed people's careers at the time, but not theirs. Mm. Because she was married to um, Lee Holman, which is where she took her name from, Vivian Lee, because she was Vivian Hartley. Mm. And uh, she married Lee Holman, who was a lawyer, took his name. And Olivier um, was married to an actress called Jill Esmond. And they both had an affair with each other. Uh, I think that started when they were. She was playing Ophelia to his Hamlet, and uh, then the rest is history, as they mm. say. They, but I think they missed the disapproval uh, because, of course, they got their divorce 
in about I think it was about 1939 and of course when the world is at war who cares about infidelity and divorce yeah. you know when your life is in danger yeah when the bombs are starting to fall you know but it's a small thing isn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um and, and you've written about that tour yes yes I have I have I'm just putting I'm, I'm just going through it the very last to see if I've made any errors you know yeah yeah, yeah. and that's going to be illustrated that's going to be illustrated as well yeah, yeah. so do you, uh, when, do you, when do you think that will uh, um, well I think I don't want to um, my publisher I don't want to push them too far because they're already bringing out another book uh, they've published the Pleaser the official history book recently um, and they're doing another book which will be out any day now uh, called Frankie Abbott's Bumper Book of Horror Stories <laughs> <laughs> right okay uh, well you must tell me about that as well then <laughs> what's that well it wasn't going to be called that right it, yes. was, it was just going to be uh, the one of the stories is called The Great Lucifer so it's going to be The Great Lucifer and other horror stories but because the police book has done so well I thought I know. Let's call it Frankie Abbott's <laughs> oh, bumper see. book of horror stories. I see. I thought. I thought it was might have been referring to a couple of um, horror films you made. No, no, no. These are these are about fourteen horror stories. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so before we get on to uh, writing itself, then, uh, and I, I almost always forget this, um, uh, a, a word, a word to to entitle the the show and uh, oh yes um i think intuition oh okay that's interesting intuition yeah, yeah. mine was much less creative than that because i i um i was going to use the word comedic oh right right um, um perhaps we'll come back to that but tell me about intuition then well intuition because i have written in the past many crime novels mm. and uh intuition or instinct uh, I read lots of true crime things and I'll never forget um, what reading about a woman in New York and uh, she had a load of shopping and uh, she lived on the second or third floor and she was opening the door to her apartment and she dropped her shopping mm. and a man appeared from nowhere and said can I help you her immediate instinct or intuition was say, don't trust this man. She, no, that's all right, she said. Mm. He then used rationality and said, um, well, I think people are so untrustworthy. They can't help your neighbor. What's it come to these days? And so she listened to him, his mm. rational. So she let him help her up the stairs. When she opened the door to her front room, her flat yeah uh he took her inside and raped her God. she managed to escape but had she listened to her first instinct yeah uh the intuition and that's when i've, I've taken that very much as a sort of suspense thing in my crime writing you know the yeah. the 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 police have to use rationality mm. you know whereas um you know like forensics and people like that not not instinct uh, yeah. to solve crimes yeah but usually people it's their instinct yeah or that lets them down sometimes 
you know, the woman in the horror film that goes into the cellar. You think, yeah. no, no, <laughs> don't, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose you're right. That is that is a key part of that suspense, isn't it? And and uh, uh, it, there's there's a there's sort of dramatic irony, isn't it? Because the audience is reacting like that and thinking or the reader is thinking yes no i wouldn't do that i wouldn't do that it doesn't feel right <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and somebody's doing you know yes taking a rational view or rationalizing an action i mean the, the thing that when you told me that story of course the 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 thing that other that occurred to me is that your instinct might be oh i don't yeah i don't trust this person but then they could turn out to be the love of your life you know, and that was the meeting. That's right. That's right. So yes, it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a junction, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and and I went out with a lady, not that long ago, in the early part of this century, and uh, had I known anything about her, you know, like if if I I met her at a party and we went out together for about three years, mm. but had I um, not met her at a party and I'd done one of these online dating things yes. and she'd said oh I'm interested in line dancing and I'm a keen golfer I wouldn't have given her another thought <laughs> well that's true yes. but because we got on very well yes um you know I was willing to overlook that and you know you're willing to overlook golf <laughs> golf yeah yeah which spoils a good walk doesn't it as they say <laughs> yeah. so you don't play show business golf oh God no! I used to, I used to loathe it. You know, Sunday night at the London Palladium when you used to get people like Dickie Henderson and Jimmy Tarbuck, and they used to talk about golf and they'd sing a song, and it went straight down the middle, yeah. all about golf. I used yeah. to think, get off the stage. <laughs> we don't all like golf, you boring yeah. people. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I just think that. Sorry, you were going to say about. Oh, I was going to say about intuition. And your intuition. word is comedic. Comedic. Yes. Well, they they apply really, don't they? Mm. Because a lot of comedy is based purely on um, intuition and instinct. Yes, you know. Yeah. Uh, certainly, I I I know timing wise, it's it's on intuition. Completely. Yes, it's what feels what right. feels right. And, yes, and going with the, going with that in the moment as yeah. well. And Judy Dench says she's very much an instinctive actress. Mm. Yeah. Which is always disappointing to people, isn't it? Because you want to know the secret. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah, right. It's not yes, like yeah, just instinct. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. do it naturally. Yeah. But then um, uh, I think it also ties into uh, your writing as well. Because you really started writing when you were on Please Sir, didn't you? Uh, well, it came a little bit later. It was the spin-off series, The Fen Street Gang. Oh, OK. And the the first series was so um, so long. It was 26 episodes that, and Esmond and Larby were doing another series of Please Sir, a um, fourth series with a new classroom. And at the same time? At the same time, and the replacement for John Alderton. They were having to write some episodes of Fen Street Gang, some of the fourth series of Please Sir, and a script edit yeah. as well for other writers who came in. And uh, at the time, I thought I had already uh, started... To, to write a bit for mm. TV. And uh, I suddenly thought, well, Frankie Abbott, the character I played, his mother, he's got this dotty mother, played by, brilliantly played by Barbara Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what happened to his father? So I wrote a, a very strong synopsis about what would happen if, if he met his father after all these years. 
So I gave it to Mark Stewart, the producer, and John Esmond and Bob Larby, the writers, and they liked it, and I got commissioned to write it. And it was broadcast, um, yeah. called When Did You Last See Your Father? <laughs> Great title. Yeah. So, so for those people who don't know it, and I, I, I guess people who are listening probably do, but the character of Frankie Abbott, what, how would you describe him? Well, he was a... He he talked big. He he was a fantasist. He you know he 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 pretended he was a private detective and all this sort mm. of thing. And he'd make up stories, but he was really um and and he would f- threaten people you know with you know thumb screws and all that sort of thing. <laughs> but really, he was a, a coward and was mother smothered. You know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so he was a mummy's boy, really. Yeah. So it's a, it's already a quite a rich character, isn't it? I mean, it's, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the, the the thing I was, uh, so when he meets his father, what's what's the uh, the story there? Well, his mother, you can, I, his mother was always sort of lying about, you know, hypochondria and all that sort of thing, and all oh, my legs, and I had to have an operation, and and uh, I wanted to get at why how. how Frankie was such a liar where he got it from obviously from his mother and he asks about his father and she said oh he he was in the secret government post you see and he this this appeals to Frankie thinks oh he's an MI5 or MI6 spy you know a bit like James Bond but listening outside his door he hears his mother tell his auntie and um, uh, that he worked as a wages not as a wages clerk um, a clerk in a labor exchange Right. In in Chadwick Street in Victoria, so Frankie goes up there and he sees his father, and he's being bossed about by a younger person saying, "Where's my tea, Mister Abbott?" and all that sort of thing. And Frankie, disillusioned, comes back and he's he says, he's, "My father's nothing but a rat face fink and stuff like that." So there's a bit of poignancy as well, yeah, you know. And, yeah. and uh, but so so the the connection with. Uh, instinct and uh, intuition is that you you must have learnt a lot about writing constructing that tv uh episode immersively just by being in it and 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 being exposed to the the writing of esmond and larby that's right that's right and and they were great for one-liners and and absolutely fantastic lines they came out with i think that's what made the series really yeah and uh uh, and then later on, um, I, I wrote a novel, um, which is probably in some landfill site. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I was having a go, you know. Yeah. And uh, and then um, Mark Stewart went over, who was our producer and director, went over to work for Thames Television. And I got another idea for a sitcom. I sent it to him and he said, come in and talk. So we went. I went in and spoke to him and uh, he said well I can't use your idea but how do you feel about writing for keep it in the family I said well I've never seen it and in those pre uh, uh, domestic DVD days he he sat me in a room uh, and I watched three episodes and I said yeah I think I could write for that so I went away and came out with some uh, synopsis and I was duly commissioned by Thames and I wrote three episodes of keep it in the family and the reason I wrote them was um, Brian Cook, who, uh, who who created it and wrote for it, he, um, it became big in America. And uh, 
he was over in America, so he'd had to farm it out in this country for mm. the third and fourth series to other writers. Yeah. So um, that's how that came about. Uh, and uh, did it pay well? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> that's good. Much better than actors get, I appear to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is good, that is good. So you must have felt uh, that... You know, you'd got a lot of success at that stage. And well, yes, and it, it got us our first flat in Tunbridge Wells, the deposit and all that sort of thing, because yeah. having done uh, Keep It In The Family, I heard that Humphrey Barclay, who was head of LWT, was looking for, for comedies for Australia. So I wrote an idea, sent it to Humphrey, and Humphrey is a really nice guy, and uh, he said, yeah, I like your idea. Um, I'll commission it, go away and write it. So I did. And it was set, I'm trying to think where it was set. I, I think it was set in a, a ten-pin bowl in, mm. in, in Australia. So I wrote it, and he liked it, sent it off to Channel 7 in Australia. And they said, well, the trouble is, uh, on the Western Australia, there's no bowling alleys. So <laughs> could, it, could it be set somewhere else? So I went in and saw Humphrey again, and he said, look, it's our fault, really. We'll recommission it. So I got paid all over again to set it somewhere else. And I just set it in a sort of family bar. And that was it, yes. And, and then Channel 7 decided they'd commissioned six by six different writers, hmm. and they didn't go ahead with any of them. But, you know, it got us a flat time. We got paid. Yeah, yeah, got paid. Oh, wow, yeah. So, yes. Um, that's that's the reality of the business, isn't it? That's right. Lots yes. of meetings. Lots of meetings and <laughs> lots of, um, lo lots of um, yeah, uh, you know, commissions, but that go nowhere. Yeah. Like I yeah. got a commission from Working Title Films for uh, again, um, Australia. Um, I I wrote um, what two page synopsis. I I'm a I'm a great Dickens fan, mm. and I love one of my favourites is David Copperfield, and I remember seeing a. Uh, Mr. McCorber in David Copperfield, played by um, W.C. Fields, yes, who's yes, my favourite. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the best one. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and uh, he apparently said at a script conference, um, where's my uh, pool shooting scene? <laughs> and they said, uh, well, actually, uh, Mr. Fields, Dickens didn't write a pool shooting scene. Ah, oh, maybe he forgot. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... I, I wrote this two-page synopsis, and I was doing a, a commercial, um, a Heineken commercial in Italy for this director. I'd done a lot of commercials yeah. for him. I was in his rep company. Yeah. And uh, I talked to him about Mr. McCorber in Australia, the further adventures of, you know. And he said, what a great idea. I'll give it to my, um, I've got a literary, uh, an agent who's also a literary agent, Terence Baker, mm -hmm. George Baker's brother. All oh, right. So he, he gave it to him. And George Baker phoned me up and he said, this is a great idea. If it takes me five years, I'll get it off the ground. Well, five years went back. And almost five years to the day, he phoned me up from where he was swimming in some pool in the south of France and said, what was that Dickens idea you had? Uh, <laughs> I said, well, it was Mr. McCall. Oh, that's right. I'll, I, I've, I've talked to some people about it, some producers. So then it was lunch at Le Caprice, you know, and... You know, and uh, he said, um, I said, where, 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 the, where are the loos, Terence? He said, oh, turn left at Michael Caine. 
that's great. And, uh, well, no, see, I've I've just read Mr. McCorber Down Under because you wrote the wrote it as a as a novel as a novel, but years and years later. Yeah. I mean, two thousand and twelve or something like that. Yeah, but now I think it's the time to to revive that and send it to Armando Inucci. Oh really? You I think, think so? so because I, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm instantly forgetting the name of the actor who played Mr. McCorber in his uh, David Copperfield. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'm afraid oh. I didn't like him. P- I love him as an actor, Peter, Peter Capaldi. Capaldi. Yes, love him as an actor. Love- Set that aside that you didn't like him in the, in the no. Past, I thought but- he played McCorber as a sort of London wide boy. Yeah, and yeah. McCorber's not like that. He has pretentious for for of gentility. Yeah, which yeah. is all this florid language yeah because yeah. dickens based it on his father you know ah yeah yeah, yeah. so um no uh no I, th- I think bob hoskins was quite good as uh, micawber he did a version uh-huh, right yeah I see that but yeah. um still my favorite wc fields because yeah. of that eccentricity i'm pretty sure wc fields not available anymore <laughs> so, so well, uh, you mean it's not still judging <laughs> But um, no, I think you know if uh, Amanda Nietzsche wanted to make a, a sequel, as it were, he can have whoever he likes. He can have, <laughs> yes, quite. But I read it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I thought. Um, uh, well, we have the, toured it. You know, we. we oh, I wrote really? it as a play. Yeah, oh, I didn't know it. that. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. And so, I played Nicole. Oh well, there you go. You could still do that. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Why not? Um, uh, yeah. So I, I read that. So when was that published? That. Uh, I think it was either 2012 or 2014. I can't remember. Right, that. okay. Um, and that was in hardback. Yes. And it was uh, published by, um, um, oh God, Richard ha- Robert Hale Books, who, yes. who began in 1936. Unfortunately, in about 2016, having, having published three of my books in hardback, none in paperback, no e-books, uh, they sold up. And they reassigned the books to another publisher that I wasn't happy with. But I looked at the contract and they could do that, unfortunately. Right. And uh, because they were print runs, they weren't print on demand. Um, they, They had something like 300 copies of my books left. So they said, we'll give you back the rights, this other publisher said, providing you buy back the books that are left. So I negotiated with them, and I eventually bought them back at two pounds per copy, right? And uh, which came to three hundred quid. But I thought at least I've got the rights back now. But I'm hoping my current publisher can publish them maybe next year in uh, paperback and e-books. That would be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so. Yeah. So um, uh, the transition from writing scripts, which, as I say, you were kind of immersed in, Mm. and you and and there's a just to awkwardly tie in my word there was there was a comedic uh, <laughs> sensibility in those wasn't it? you were writing comedies um to then move to writing novels you said you'd had a go at a novel yes and it well, hadn't worked what out was that what was that novel about oh it was a, it was a thriller but it, it was it had a bit of fantasy element involved and uh you know you weren't sure if this was real or not, you know, okay. whether it was somebody's imagination. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I buried it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you've got to do it. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. What was that? Did you see them as different kinds of writing or as a different job to write a novel as opposed to writing an episode of a, of oh, a sitcom? Or a... Oh, very much so, because you could in a novel, you can get into someone's head mm. in in 
in visual stuff you've got to you know the actor has got to say it with his eyes or you've got to do it in without speaking really mm. you know. so you have to show things yeah yeah, yeah. i worked as um teaching drama in youth and community oh yeah and i had a little group and they wanted to make a film so we they bought a camera quite an expensive hd camera and uh I th these people are very shy and the you know dialogue and it was very liberating for me because i wrote a film in which there was no dialogue and some of them were very shy so i set i made it a ghost story set in Halloween, although we shot it in the summer, and uh, you know, so some of them who were really shy had Halloween masks on, and uh, a ghost story. Um, yes, yeah, so it was liberating. No dialogue. Oh, that that I, w I would love to read that because I think one of the most difficult things is to uh, is to make something happen on screen and not write dialogue. Yes, yes, yeah, uh, and and to know what those scenes yeah. are. You know what has to happen. Well, one of my favourite comedians is Jacques Tati ah, and right. very little dialogue hardly any yeah yeah yes so um so what was the the, the difference then in, in beginning to write novels did you find that easy um well no not at first um I'd already had a go at it and it wasn't easy um because obviously you know you've got to be descriptive and you've got to you know smell and feel and taste and stuff like that um, so, but the first one I wrote was called Each Man Kills and a lot of people have told me from all the books that they've read that that's my favourite one oh, right. yeah maybe I was inspired or something I don't know have um, you reread it since? <laughs> I've had a look at it since I don't, I, I don't want to read the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you might inspire you to... <laughs> um, yeah but your approach then to uh, you call them crime crime fiction crime yeah. fiction yeah I was because I, I always get confused between crime and suspense, and you know Patricia Highsmith sort of calls it suspense, doesn't she? I think. Yes, that's because her protagonist is a bad guy, you know, as yeah. in uh, what's his name, uh, Tom uh, uh, yes. Ripley. Ripley. Tom Ripley. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a bad guy. Yeah, he's amoral totally. Yeah. So, but that's her <laughs> main character. Mm. Yeah, but yours, yours a crime. Yeah. Um, why crime? Why is that? Um, why crime? It's a big. It's a big subject. That's why. And I think, you know, we all agree, of that our species, thou shalt not kill. Whereas all the rest is grey areas, depending on when you grew up. If you grew up as flower power in the nineteen sixties, infidelity would be a grey area, wouldn't it? But even somebody in the sixties having that grey area would think, no, you shouldn't kill. And uh, if you couple that, thou shalt not kill, with um, a mystery, um, you know, with clues, people love solving puzzles, don't mm. they? Um, I think the puzzle el element goes along with it. Right. So this is back to that, that uh, yeah, that intuition thing. Uh, when, when yes, uh, uh, your character acts against their own instincts or... That's right. That's or, right. Or, or indeed, the detective has to act on their instincts to. That's right. To solve yes. it. Yeah. Yes. Do, how much research do you do for these? Um, yeah, I did um, with, with the first. I wrote three novels with the same character set in Swansea. The first one was Each Man Kills. Um, the next one was called The Wrecking Bar, mm. and but that was Robert Hale, who 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 of course just did hardback. So 
I'm hoping um, my current publisher will you know, do that in paperback. But it was the same detective, and I got in touch with South Wales Police, and they're quite helpful, you know, with put you right where you might go wrong and that yeah. sort of thing. You have to have some sort of poetic license, of course, yeah. a dramatic license. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, no, they, 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 they don't mind talking. I'll never forget once, um, I, I wanted uh, my character, my antagonist, um, he's being chased by the police in w rural West Wales. And uh, so I phoned up uh, Sussex police and I said, um, if a helicopter, heat-seeking helicopter, was looking for a suspect, um, how could that suspect evade the um, search? So this policewoman said to me, she said, how do I know you're not a villain? <laughs> so I said, well, you've got Ignore my... Ignore that helicopter sound in the yeah, background. Yeah. <laughs> you've got my phone number. I said, I, she said, well, he would either crawl under a car that's recently been driven because the heat of the car they would see, they wouldn't mm. see the human heat. Or if it's in the summer, the heat of, of the leaves, an oak tree with that's plenty of leaves would soak up the heat wow. and the heat-seeking helicopter wouldn't see the human heat right so that's what i did in my novel i said thanked her and put that in <laughs> and this is like a public service broadcast yes, for villains yes yes, 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right what else so yeah that's interesting so um uh yeah who was that other crime writer who was uh was actually a forensic scientist she she Cornwall um, yes Patricia Patricia Cornwall Corm yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. She, she, yeah. she always uh, wanted to put and, a, and I'll tell you who's very good as well Michael Connolly because he works a lot oh. with the police because I think he was a crime reporter originally oh I see but I read one of his books and his book was usually if somebody loads a gun and fires it mm. even the ejected shells because of the explosion remove all fingerprints unless the person has loaded the gun you know uh, with rubber gloves mm. but now forensics can use some i don't know electro analysis and they can re get fingerprints off those shells even though even though they've been fired even though they've been fired and the person hasn't used gloves wow to load the gun and the people that discovered this that have uh, used it is um Northampton forensics. Oh, really? And that's where Michael Connolly got it from. I thought, oh, I see. Such a small world. He must do a lot of research. Yeah, yeah. So, you, so you're constantly reading other crime novels, or? Yes, yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My favourite at the moment, because I've been watching them on TV, is the Inspector Montalbano novels. Oh, yes. Andrea yeah. Cal Calieri. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, they're obviously they're in translation, aren't they? They're oh yes, yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> but very well translated, yeah, and yeah. yeah, with notes at the end of of, of the Italian food, because uh, Inspector Montalbano is very fond of his food. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, uh, do you do you subscribe to this uh, idea that uh, your your detective character has to have these sort of personal um, idiosyncrasies? Um. No, that's why I'm not a great Morse fan. Hmm. I like the television series, but the books, because I felt that there aren't many coppers. I have known a few, you know. Um, and this opera-loving, poetry-reading, um, real ale, 
<laughs> yes. Old cars, antique cars, copper. I don't think they exist. No. Um, they're more likely. My copper is. Um, <laughs> he's a he's a flawed character, mm. uh, Harry Lambert, the yeah. South Wales one, and you know, um, his wife's found something in the back of his car from one of his infidelities, you know, and uh, mm. <laughs> which has ruined his marriage. Yeah, and I think I go for that more realistic uh, approach rather than the opera loving copper. Yeah, um, yeah, and and uh, but they and they very often have drink problems. Yes, they do. They do. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when I was, this is long before I ever thought about writing crime. Um, some in a pub in East London, some detectives uh, recognised me and said, "Ed, do you want to come with us? We're on one of our rounds one night. You can see how we operate." And uh, he said, "He said it's not like he's seeing." In the, in the TV and film, yeah. you know, because we, we go to a hospital there and they give us a cup of char and then and then we go to a pub after hours and we have a few drinks yeah. there. And I thought, is, they just skive off. <laughs> <laughs> um, which reminds me, do you know, when I was reading the Please Sir book and, and you wrote, you wrote uh, an earlier book, was it called An Actor's Life? Oh, yes, a flashback, An flashback. Actor's Life, yes. Yeah. Um, what struck me then, and this might be unfair, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that a, a lot of drinking went on in those theatre uh, days. Oh, yes, yes. Because well, quite a lot of the characters that you tell us about, introduce to us, you say, of course, he had a problem with drink. <laughs> yes, oh, yes, hugely so. I mean, yeah. um, uh, oh, Bill, um, oh, Bill, oh, God, my, my brain's going now. No, don't. Um, <laughs> he, he, he played Dr. Finley's casebook. Oh, yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, I worked with him, and it was almost a two-hand of the play. There were other characters in the play, but it was just between him and I. Mm. And uh, when we rehearsed, um, Bill, you know, he went out lunchtime and he'd drink scotch and a, and a beer chaser and stuff like that. Rehearsal in the afternoon was useless. Yeah. And uh, so we we had to call rehearsal for half nine in the morning till 2.30, you know, and then break for the rest of the day yeah but when we opened on stage it was oh it was your, your life was in your hands yeah it's yeah. quite difficult to do. <laughs> it was difficult yeah yeah yes and then I, I wish i could remember his name but i do remember that uh, the uh, the other the partner doctor was andrew crookshank andrew crookshank that's right yeah. yeah yeah and i met him the first time i went to the edinburgh festival because he was a patron of the fringe at the time i oh, think really right. yeah and you've done the Fringe, haven't you? You've done the Edinburgh Fringe. Yes, yes, yes. Um, for the first time uh, in 2016. How that came about was um, I did a talk. I do talks from time to time um, about, you know, Laurence Olivier and Pleaser and that mm. sort of thing. And uh, I did one for a company called Misty Moon, a guy called Stuart Morris and mm. his wife, uh, in a cafe bar in Soho. Oh, yeah. And I met him later on in a, in a pub in Tunbridge Wells. We had a glass of wine. He said, you know, people would have liked you to have done a bit of Frankie Abbott. The talk went very well, but they'd have liked to have seen a bit of Frankie Abbott. Hmm. So I said, Stuart, I'm, I'm in my 70s. I said, <laughs> I'd feel a bit strange doing that. And then a light bulb moment. I thought, how would it be, and it's never been done before, if I did it in real time, if I played Frankie Abbott in his 70s? So I wrote half-hour script or 45-minute script and set it in a 
care home where Frankie has a carer and it was a two-handed play yeah and uh, he's hasn't changed that much because he's still a fantasist but he's got the onset of Alzheimer's like he refers every so often to the carer as his mother hmm. even though his mother's probably long since passed away and uh, there's a bit of poignancy in it and oh. it's also quite funny yeah and we toured it in the southeast and then we took it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival where and uh, comedian Mickey Flanagan came to see it one night he brought his family to see it and he oh, said yeah. he really loved it and, yeah. uh, and uh, we got five star review for it excellent yeah. excellent I think you should do it again. We are. We're, Good. Do, we're doing it again, but in a different way. I've rewritten it two episodes with a cast of six in one episode, five in the others, with real residents in the home, played by people like uh, Graham Cole, who played PC Stamp in The Bill, oh, yeah. and uh, my old friend Larry Dan, who I went to Corona Academy with, who played uh, Sergeant Peters in The Bill. Yeah. And... Uh, we're doing this rather like the BBC used to do at the Paris Cinema as a radio, two radio shows, live in front of an audience yeah. at the Phoenix Arts Club in Charing Cross Road. It's yeah. a lovely club. Yeah. And we're doing it as the BBC round microphones, you know, with the yeah. script in hand. And that's how we're doing it. Excellent. With, with sound effects, of course. And, and then they'll be produced recorded and reduced produced as cds and mp3 downloads brilliant when's when are you recording that um the 13th of november can i be there yeah of course you can great yeah that would be great Do you I know love, the book to... it's it's booking quite heavily. i am sure it is i'm yeah. sure it is I, I don't know about you but i think there's a real yeah there, there's a there's a not desperation but there's a, a urgency to get back to live theatre isn't there and there is for, there I mean is. for people who you know miss it obviously that's right that's right yes yes I, I I did some of these talks I was doing them on zoom and it was I I didn't like it very much and no. they said the feedback was good but I couldn't see them responding yes you know presumably they were responding yes but, but there's a there's such I, a difference isn't there oh when I did my first instant. talk live about a month ago and it was so different, you know. Yeah, absolutely different. Yeah, and that's that's when you can use that intuition, isn't it? And that, that's right. That, that, yes, yes. That comedic sense as well. I'm, I'm sounding as if this is planned, but it's <laughs> to, yes. to, to, to get yes, us back I, to that. But yeah, I, I did a yeah. That intuition was was great because in my talk I described a, a policer where we were doing the policer film, the first location. And in old black and white movies, if you ever watch talking pictures, you might mm. see some old B films, old black and white movies, where there's an Edens van in the background. Edens were a removal firm who used to take all the equipment, the props and the camera. And because they were filmed very quickly, they didn't bother to move the Edens van. It was in the oh, back I of see. certain shots. Yeah. Edens were getting a free uh, advert out of it, so they didn't bother, you know. Mm. But when we were doing Pleaser, we had an Edens van, and the first assistant director, Pat Kelly, was going berserk. Get rid of the effing Edens van, it's in the back of every effing <laughs> shot. Mate. Every... So, anyway, my wife and I, we went to the Royal Academy about a year later to see um, a Lowry exhibition. And Lowry, as I'm sure you know, after his mother died, he came to 
give his first exhibition in London mm. and he painted some London scenes and one of those scenes was called On Location <laughs> yes you see you've guessed it haven't you <laughs> yes <laughs> he even got into the Lowry's painting well that's what I'm saying about this live thing the audience it was a, a, a rotary club audience they all got it so they were laughing before I got to the tag uh, so <laughs> that's again the the intuition isn't yes, it when, yeah. knowing when to stop perfect yes yeah which is which sounds like a perfect cue for us to stop because I'm sure we've been talking for <laughs> yes. for, for an, uh, just over an hour but it's flown oh, by gosh it has flown by hasn't but, it yeah I mean, there's probably so much more we could talk about but so let's let's finish off by um uh summarizing your your um what what's going to come out next as far as your writing's concerned well the book of horror stories is coming out next that that should be i think within a month <laughs> hopefully by halloween certainly oh yes of course so so i'll i'll put the details on the end and on the information with the podcast um and the um olivier book olivier, is on its way I, that's very much on its way yes yeah. yes in fact as soon as they've done the cover design and brought out the horror book hmm. i'll send them the olivier book yeah good and and hopefully the reissue of some of your yeah maybe crime. early next year some reissue of the crime novel and the micawber well, that yes, that would be great, wouldn't it? And yeah. then I think we need to look at some live events to uh, yes. to get you reading some of these. Yeah, because as, as, as I say, I loved the uh, the Macorber book, and I I, uh, I want to read the other crime novels which I haven't read. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to to reading the others. Yes, yes. Well, I think you, I think you know you uh, authors do they have favorite ones that they've written i think my favorite one is the wrecking bar which was the second one of the harry lambert ones yes. and mainly because um i describe the um the birth which rescues my copper at the end the birth of his uh, detective sergeant's little girl is born and it was just how my daughter was born exactly you right. know so you know <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah Thank you so much, David. Well, thank you, Phil. It's been thank a pleasure. You. I really thank enjoyed you. it. Yeah. Do you want a cup of coffee? Then? So that was David Barry, who I'd like to think of as a friend of Mr. Books. It was lovely chatting with him face to face, as I say, and I had a nice cup of coffee as well. Uh, and of course, you can order any of David's books through Mr. Books. You can call or go online to www.mrbooks.co.uk and you can message us or uh, just click on the link to order new books. Uh, now, we have another very exciting live event coming up in December. It's the comedian and writer Robin Ince on his uh, 100 Bookshop Tour, launching his hugely entertaining book about science and conspiracy theories and time and quantum biology and pretty much everything in the universe it's called the importance of being interested uh, and it would make a great christmas present as would tickets to the event so if you'd like to join us uh, at the oast theater for that on the 8th of december you have to book in advance so there's no tickets on the night uh, you can go and book that at mrbooks.co.uk 
Ideas in Writing is supported by Mr Books Bookshop in Tunbridge. It's the home of independent, inspiring and imaginative gifts and conversation. Thank you for listening to Ideas in Writing. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an Acast supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much.